0: Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today on the show, we're going to be recapping some of the best clips from Season 2 of the podcast thus far. This year, we've covered entrepreneurialism, small businesses, real estate, investing, and more, and these clips offer a sneak peek into each topic. As a reminder, all of these clips come from longer episodes, so if you want to learn more about a particular show, check out the full episodes on Wealth of Knowledge from wherever you listen to the podcast. So in this first clip, you'll hear Netflix co-founder and first CEO Mark Randolph discuss how he and co-founder Reed Hastings originally came up with the idea for their video rental by mail company. So the full title of the book is That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. And we're going to spend the majority of our time really diving into that subtitle to hear your story and what other entrepreneurs can learn from it. So let's start with the birth of the idea for Netflix. In the first few pages, you write, epiphanies are rare, and when they appear in origin stories, they're often oversimplified or just plain false. Distrust epiphanies. Your and co-founder Reed Hastings' idea for Netflix developed over a longer period of time?
1: Yeah, you know, we all kind of want that epiphany story. It's somehow neat and tidy to imagine, you know, Newton under the apple tree or Archimedes in his bathtub, or even the two guys with the blow-up air mattress, you know. But it doesn't work like that. Um, And what I wanted to do in That'll Never Work is kind of tell this untold story of Netflix and that at the beginning, it could have been almost anything. Because back when Reed and I, Reed Hastings, my co-founder and I, were brainstorming ideas, yeah, we thought about video rental by mail, but we also thought about crazy things like personalized shampoo or custom baseball bats and... These crazy ideas, and in fact, the idea that we came up with for video rental by mail at first seemed amazing because there's this eight billion dollar category, um, the entrenched competitor um, left a lot to be desired in the customer experience category. Um, so it sounded great, but back then it was all um, VHS, those big cassettes. So even that idea was a bad one and it got abandoned. And so over a period of months, you know, we kept going with ideas until we heard about that new thing called the DVD and that really is what unlocked the possibility of um, doing video rental by mail
0: So I want to set a timeline for your work at Netflix you start the brainstorming for the idea in spring of 1997 by the fall of 1997 you have your seed money the 1.9 million from co-founder Reed Hastings and then by April 1998 Netflix is launched so I have a few questions from this I'll start with this one. How on earth were you able to build a brand new product in six months? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure
1: whether you're. uh, How did you ever comment on how long it took? Like, how could you ever have spent six months? We could do that in an afternoon for probably a nickel or free. And it's true. Uh, But back then, this was 1998, this is 21 years ago. And. Certainly the technology was not in the same place it is today, that if you wanted to build a website, you couldn't just go and download Squarespace or something. You had to build it yourself, every line of code. You wanted to take credit cards, you had to write your own credit card processing um, software. You wanted to do security, you wanted to do redundancy, you wanted to do all those things, you had to do them yourself. And so it did. It took us six months. It took us a million dollars and a dozen people to roll out a pretty basic e-commerce website. It it wasn't easy. In fact, on that day one, which was April 14th of 1998, the big question wasn't what's gonna happen with Blockbuster or what's gonna happen with proprietary content or any of those things. It was, is this website going to
0: work? So now I've I've named Reed a few times, uh, who, by the way, is still at Netflix as CEO. So I'm I'm curious to know your relationship with him in Netflix's early days.
1: So that goes back probably a year prior. uh, And two friends and I had founded a really geeky startup doing quality assurance software. Uh, So that's the software that people who are finding bugs in software would use. and the kind of kind of company that no one knows what the hell you're talking about. My mother had no idea what I was doing. But um, Reed Hastings knew what we were doing. And his company, which was called Pure Atria, acquired our company. And the other eight people in the company all ended up being assigned to the basement to form a business unit. Uh, but I was the, I was the marketing kind of business person. And so they pulled me upstairs to run marketing for Reed's company. So I got to work with him professionally, but the real break was that Reed and I both lived in the same town. We both lived in Santa Cruz, California. And we ended up commuting together. And it was a 45 to an hour-minute drive each way. And so during that period, which only lasted about six months, um, we got to know each other pretty well. And what really formed Netflix is that Reed's company, Puratria, was in itself acquired. Um, and probably the biggest break out of that was that Reed and I both got fired, but you know not not fired in that awful way, um, but fired in the golden handcuffs way, where in an acquisition they tell you you've got to stick around in case they have questions, and they're going to pay you, and your stock's going to vest, and you can stay in your office, but you have nothing to do. And so after a few weeks of Reed and I going and playing golf together and going off scuba diving during when the rest of the company was on the retreat actually doing business, um, I said, I'm going to start another company. Because I had done five companies prior to coming into um, Netflix. And Reed, um, at that time, didn't want to do another company. He wanted to change the world, um, change education specifically. So he was going to go back to Stanford and get his um, a graduate degree in education but wanted to keep his hand in. So we hatched the plan that we'd come up with an idea. Uh, he would be the angel, and then I would start and run uh, the company. So Reed and I had a year or so um, of time together. But it was one of those things where the minute I met Reed, I kind of knew this was a kindred spirit, that he was a yin to my yang, You know that he had this approach so different than mine. But both of us shared this common cultural um, attitude which was and you know now it's called radical honesty i'm not sure what i would have called it then but no time wasted on niceties and no coloring the truth to avoid sparing someone's feelings um vigorous debate followed by complete understanding of which was the obviously right answer and so in many ways he was a fantastic person to have as a business partner
0: Amanda Brinkman, creator and host of Small Business Revolution, on the importance of online marketing for businesses in small towns versus big cities. Are there differences in how to approach marketing in a small town versus a big city? I mean, was, the technology around branding and social media, it's it's changing and it's evolving so quickly uh and it's so, you know, it's so important based on consumer habits. So How important is it for a small town business versus a big city business, and what are the differences between the two?
2: So the great thing about marketing today is that uh, when you think about your online presence, you can show up big online. Whether you're in a small town or a large urban area, you can both have the same level of professional website, you can make sure that your um, online listings are claimed, you can have a great professional looking logo. And so what we love about marketing is it really levels the playing field. But it's just as important in a small town to make sure that your marketing is in great shape. Because not only can people from outside of your town patron your business or find it, but it's really important to be showing up locally. So, for example, one of the businesses we worked with in season four in Searcy, Arkansas, is a coffee um, shop, and they also sell creperies, which is a, a definitely um, a unique uh, food option in a small uh, rural town in the middle of Arkansas, but they were listed on Google as a crepery and they couldn't figure out why nobody would Come to them for coffee, or when they searched for themselves, that they were like number 14th or 16th on the list, depending on which search engine they were using. And so we just went in and helped them claim their Google listing and fix what they were listed as. And so businesses have control over that, but it's especially vital in a small town that you have the, that local search locked down and that you're listed the way you want to be, that your hours are accurate, and that you're responding to reviews. And so few businesses, whether it's in a small town or a large urban area, haven't uh, made that simple stuff of just uh, claiming their listings.
0: What are some of your steps to revitalizing I should say, I guess when you when you sit down with a small business owner, what are the differences in terms of the advice you give for an existing business that's not seeing growth versus somebody who's sort of just starting out with this idea that they want to turn into a business?
2: Uh, well, again, in both cases, we see that that marketing makes the biggest difference. So often, when we're talking to business owners, they say, "Well, I got to wait until I grow to a certain point before I can invest." In marketing, and I need to—they almost see it as a luxury. But we often say it's not that you have to wait until you can afford to do it. You can't afford not to do it. I mean, it's really important that you uh, start out uh, right away with a great professional branding. That you have a website that you're findable online. Uh, because again, you can show up like a business that's been around for years just with the professionalism of the look and feel again of your site and of your, of your branding. And so whether it's a startup or someone who's been in business for a long time, one of the biggest things we work with them on is just really co- creating that consistent brand and minding their online presence.
0: So obviously this is a tough question to ask you, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what are, Do you have any <laughs> sort of dollar amount to shoot for for a small business when they have these these hesitations with you about not being able to afford it? Do you Is there a baseline number that you say, listen, you can get into this at this amount?
2: Uh, Yeah, any investment, it is tough to answer because it really depends on percentage of revenue, the industry, so so you're you're, um, wise to acknowledge is a tough question (laughs) on the way in. But uh, we really just tell them to to start small. I mean, really paid advertising, especially on social platforms, can be a really great way to test into uh, kind of that return on investment. It's very measurable there's a very low price point to getting involved. I mean, it might be very intimidating to a business to do a whole TV ad campaign or or rent a billboard, but you can spend a couple hundred dollars on Facebook or on Instagram, and you can start to measure right away if that's driving traffic to your website, if you're seeing some conversions from that, what kind of engagement it's driving. I think a lot of uh, businesses are, again, waiting for to get to a certain point before they start dabbling or investing, but even just with a couple hundred dollars, it's great to just experiment with it and and see uh, what that return is, and then you can decide to invest more.
0: Communications coach, speaker, and founder of the Ask Like an Auctioneer platform, Dia Bondi, on how women can approach asking for better compensation at work. So you talk about that ask. I think a big ask is, is the salary step now, and the salary negotiation and also just asking for raises outside of that maybe yearly career development meeting. So for women, this is obviously a bigger challenge than, than I think it is for men. Uh, what are some, some more positive steps that you think women can, can take to, to advocate for themselves?
3: Sure. So I think it's similar to the answer I just gave you before, which is getting really clear about what you want and uncoupling what you want from what you think is possible. <laughs> like it's okay for us to really um get clear about what do i want i I, i'll just draw on another example from one of my workshops um recently i had a woman um come up for the live coaching portion and she was looking to she was right on her like third round of um of interviews she was early in her career um uh, also actually in the space of legal interesting legal and tech and she She was looking to leave her organization, was in negotiation with another organization, was about to get an offer, and she was defining her salary. And when I brought her to the front of the room and said, okay, you don't have to tell us what your salary is now, but tell us what you're going to be asking for. And she offered a number, and the whole room sort of blew up, you know? The whole room thought, wait a second, there's got to be more room for you to ask for something that is not just what you think you can get, but instead something that sends a signal to what kind of game you wanna be playing um, and really maximizing the potential of that negotiation. And th- when we asked the room, what do you think her, her number can actually be? It was like another $30,000 above what wow. she thought was quote unquote reasonable. So I think we have to always uncouple, we have to always uncouple, what do we think we're gonna get a yes to or what do we think is reasonable or friendly or has the right optics or is you know fair? <laughs> And instead ask ourselves, what do, we, what do we think is possible for us? And then what do we think we're gonna get, an, maybe threatens a no that I then can actually negotiate down to a number that is higher than what we thought, that, than what I, what I would aim for originally that would just automatically get a yes. And there's, over and over, I just to add one more thing, I'm sorry, over and over again, it's just to know that you can negotiate.
0: That's, I mean, that's basically what I was going to say. There's, I think there's a fear. Let's say you, you want $10,000 more to your salary or something. There's a fear that if you ask for too high a number, your boss is just going to fire you and say, no, thanks. Like, guy will, you know, never come back as opposed to no, but here's what we can do instead. So that, that, that's a great point to bring up.
3: Yeah, you, you're absolutely right there That that I see over and over again that there's a fear that if I ask for too much, it'll just kill the conversation altogether. Right. And, and nine times out of ten, it does not. And if it does, that's a sign that maybe you're ready to look elsewhere.
0: U.S. News Travel Managing Editor Aaron Shields on how to maximize travel rewards credit cards to fly internationally at little to no cost. So we will get into your personal examples in a minute, but the first question I want to ask is what I think a lot of trip planners deal with when trying to find the best price. This is what happens with me. You start on one travel site, then that links to three of the best deal sites, and then those three link out to nine other sites, and suddenly you have 15 tabs open, you have no idea which are reputable, and you can't make heads or tails of your itinerary. So, how do you, Aaron Shields, travel expert, how do you clear away all the noise when shopping for airfare or hotels?
4: Yeah, I definitely agree. There's a lot of information out there, and it can be really hard to wade through. For me, it's really helpful to pick the destination or destinations I'm thinking about traveling to first. Start there. If you know you want to go to the beach or if you want to visit Europe, you kind of do a little research about those destinations and pick those out first before you even start looking at deals, points, miles, hotels, flights, things like that. So once I decide on a destination, then I look a little bit more closely at the hotel options that are available, uh, see what's available, what gets good reviews, what the photos look like. Um, When I'm looking at reviews, I'll look at sites like TripAdvisor, uh, Google Reviews, Booking.com, even US News Travel to see, you know, What travelers are saying, what experts are saying about this hotel, how's the Wi-Fi, are the pools really nice, is it really hard to get a spot at the beach?
0: The practical things.
4: Obviously. So yeah, that's kind of, I would say start with your destination first, figure that out, and then move on to the hotels and the flights.
0: So, you've picked a destination, you're ready to start booking. At this point, let's look at one of the trips you took that we we discussed earlier, the trip to Italy. Uh, How did you plan out that trip to save as much as possible?
4: Sure, so I had a wedding that I was attending in Italy, in northeastern Italy, a little bit outside of Venice. I knew that we had to fly into Venice and I knew that it was going to be in August. Uh, So I started by taking a look at what flight options were available from DC, that's my home airport. What's really nice about that is we have a couple options. We got BWI, Reagan, and Dulles. Uh, I used Google Flights to kind of figure out what sort of airlines flew to Venice, uh, what you know, what options were available. So I ended up finding that United had quite a few flights, and United is a really solid option for me because Dulles is a United hub, so there are always a lot of options for flights out of Dulles, whether it was to Italy or elsewhere down the road united was also a good pick for me because i have a chase sapphire reserve card and so you can use points from chase sapphire to transfer those to the united program as well so i knew down the road it would be a good option
0: so you had that card already that was not something that you bought that you applied for because of this trip? You already had it.
4: So I had one card previously and then I did apply for the United Mileage Plus Explorer card for this trip specifically. Okay. So for that one it ended up being uh, 60,000 bonus points uh, that you get if you spend a certain amount. I got those points and then I got the card in January and then ended up booking it closer to April.
0: That was the United card? Correct. Nice. Yeah. So then you took those points to the flight and what percentage of the flight were you able to get free with those
4: points? It covered the whole flight, uh, with exception of taxes and fees. Uh, what was really also nice about the United card is that it covers two free checked bags if you are traveling on, if you book it on that card. Uh, so I paid for my taxes and fees on the card, I booked kind of the lowest fare available, and you know they have the basic economy fares now, so if you have that card, you can still book a basic economy fare and check a bag if you need to and you also get priority boarding which is pretty cool as well
0: and so how what were some of the qualifications for that card that you needed some of the thresholds that you needed to meet in order to get those points and then how more quickly were you able to pay that off? Was that something that you had to spend a certain amount in a certain period of time before you could get the points?
4: Yes, so pretty much for all the travel rewards cards there's gonna be a threshold. It's typically somewhere between $2,000 and $4,000 you need to spend in anywhere from one to three months. I would definitely recommend that if you are looking at a travel credit card that you know that you can meet that because getting the bonus points is really gonna be the way that you are catapulted into those high points values to be able to Get a lot of points to book the free stuff. Um, so yeah, I ended up getting uh, it was spent two thousand dollars within three months to get the sixty thousand bonus points. So I ended up doing it in about two months, and then they came in. Uh, I just basically used what that card for everything that I needed in those two months, uh, and didn't use any of my other credit cards. So, so. Like
0: January, February, March. Right. You had already paid it off. You had the points, and now you're off to Italy.
4: Yes, off to Italy in August. Very exciting.
0: Lauren and Stephen Keyes, millennial super savers, investors, travelers, and creators of the Trip of a Lifestyle blog, on how they transitioned from full-time work to living on the road during a 61 National Park road trip. And so, once you had this idea in place, I suppose at a certain point there was that, uh, listen, I'm going to go tell my boss tomorrow that this, that this is happening, that I want to take this, this kind of trip. From that moment, how long did it take you uh, to prepare for the trip that you would end up undertaking? This sixty-one national park
5: trip. So, um, in terms of like working things out with our employers, I want to say I gave my boss like probably six months of notice, something like that, um, when we had the idea. And I same for me, actually. I, we both approached our employers like, um, you know, we're we're planning to take this trip. And it's going to take us about, you know, seven or eight months, something like that. So, you know, we could leave our positions at the company, which is not necessarily what we want to do. Or we could work something out where maybe we take some of our responsibilities on the road with us part time. Both of our jobs involve a lot of stuff that could be done from a computer. And, you know, maybe we just pick back where we left off and we come back. And so my employer was very much game for that. Um, He was happy to have me continue working um, while we were gone. So I worked like 10 to 12 hours a week, something like that while we were on the trip and um, you know, Lauren's employer was open to the idea, like maybe it wasn't like a hard no, but when it got right down to it, they just kind of wanted to cut her pay uh, like on an hourly basis a little bit for being remote and the numbers didn't really add up for us so Lauren just kind of ended up saying no thanks that's okay i think i'm just going to quit
0: and then what was the the process like in in preparing to uh to take this to take this big trip
6: well uh for this trip in particular one of the things that we were looking to do was keep the costs low um obviously traveling for you know 7 months is a little bit different too than our hawaii trip where we you know instead of having an apartment in Florida. We had an apartment in Hawaii, so the costs weren't that different, but obviously traveling every single day, there are more costs involved. And so the first thing we did was look for a cost-effective way to do that, and we decided on living in a van. Um, And I say that But, you know, really, we kind of were sleeping in a van, not not living in a van. Uh, We got the (laughs) smallest possible uh, compact cargo van, literally just big enough in the back for a full size bed, built some storage underneath it, um, literally some planks of wood Um, and uh, you know, that was our, our rig for, for the trip. Um, the van that we bought has the best gas mileage in its class. Um, and that was really important to us too. Um, but definitely having the van for our accommodation saved us a lot. I think you did some, some numbers on that, Stephen.
5: Um, yeah, I'd say honestly having the van versus like just getting a hotel every night would save us something like eight or ten thousand dollars over the course of the trip i honestly don't remember the number anymore
3: but
6: we've got a full write-up of like the cost breakdown of the trip on our blog so um for for both hawaii and the national park trip but um the van was a huge step so we found the van used um, that was kind of the first step we built out the platform found a bed um you know we we found like one of those online cheaper mattress brands um and you know from there uh you know the preparation after that was kind of slow we we knew where we where we wanted to go and we kind of planned for going south first um staying uh heading west going um heading west staying in the south uh during winter because we started in january but um the weather's a lot different in the rest of the country than in florida so we decided <laughs> to not uh we had a lot of things change our route and so we just decided to only be planned out a couple parks in advance. And so that's um, the most planning we did at any time was a few parks in advance. And then Alaska took some additional planning. But other than that, we kind of did it as we went.
0: (laughs) In our last clip, U.S. News senior investing reporter John Devine names a few of his 10 best stocks that he thinks are poised for a strong year in 2020. The first one here is Metafast, the American Nutrition and Weight Loss Company. I've seen it described also uh, as a multi-level marketing company, which is a phrase that I think <laughs> terrifies most people. But you say, uh, go confidently.
7: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, this was an issue that was a, just the business uh, model itself doesn't make it, um, you know, isn't an indictment of, of the company necessarily. I mean, um, Herbalife was was similar uh, company is a similar company and that was a big uh, debate between some activist investors like uh, Carl Icahn and um, Bill Ackman a few years ago and it and it turned out that um, you know the company was fine and um, and, and Metafast is is um, has been hit in 2019. I think that's what makes it one of the best stocks to buy for 2020. Um, it's trading at extremely attractive multiple, and um, there, there has been an activist investor that recently got in. He was involved with the company a few years ago. Um, he, he bought, um, I don't know if it was 2014, many, you know, five years ago or something. And uh, through, you know, working with the board and agitating and buybacks and stuff, um, the stock went much higher and he's, uh, sold and now he's back. It's, uh, you know, so on wall street, you never know how those things work. If there's a little something shady going on behind the scenes in terms of the timing. But I mean, I liked his timing the first time around and, uh, and it pays a 5% dividend. It trades for 14 times earnings, you know, sells, um, health and nutrition products. I think that people always want to lose weight and that's a, you know, going into the new year, that's, uh, that's going to be on people's minds. So I think it's, um, it's a $1 billion company, which is relatively small in the grand scheme of things. So it is a little bit more in- aggressive, but I think, um, if you're looking to target, you know, quicker, quicker potential gains, uh, this is a company, um, I would be interested in buying for sure.
0: Next up is Alibaba, the Chinese multinational conglomerate holding company that specializes in e-commerce, retail, internet, and tech. What do you like in the future with Alibaba?
7: You know, uh, the easiest way to think of Alibaba is a, as a sort of uh, analog to um, to Amazon in China, and uh, except Alibaba is um, earning a lot more right now. Um, Amazon has, you know, been Uh, has pursued a different strategy, but um, Alibaba sales are are still growing incredibly quickly over the last five years. um, I think they've grown by an average of almost 50% a year, which is incredible. And in 2020, they're projected to grow another 30%. And, you know, this is a half a trillion dollar company. You know, this is no Metafest um, we're talking about. Um, And the trade war has not impacted it really at all in terms of the business, which I've been impressed with you know i think that the market of just uh middle class uh, chinese that are up and coming it's it's one of the most if not the most coveted market for businesses in the world and alibaba has a firm grip on that and uh it's very hard to sort of um, there are high barriers to entry if you want to compete with it so i think it's a great company great stock to buy i own some myself
0: Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. Please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, comment on it. And if you have financial advice questions you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails and we'll try to answer a few on an upcoming episode. Finally, if you'd like to read up on financial advice, check out money.usnews.com where we have a wide range of information on personal finance, careers, real estate, investing, and more. For Wealth of Knowledge, I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.